This is Schoolhouse Equity and Education. Welcome everyone to Schoolhouse. I am Allison Brown and I am your host. A lot has happened in the past few days in North Dakota where the Dakota Access Pipeline has inspired months of consolidated protests among Native tribes and their allies at Standing Rock. Today, my guest is Jacqueline Peta, the Executive Director of the National Congress of American Indians. Jackie is a member of the Raven Sockeye Clan of the Klingat Tribe. She is the sixth vice president for the Central Council of the Klingat Haida Indian Tribes of Alaska. Jackie, welcome to Schoolhouse. Thank you. First, what is the Dakota Access Pipeline and, and why has it stirred so much attention? Well, it's another one of the pipelines that, of course, are going through North Dakota. And this pipeline like other pipelines throughout the you know country, travels a long distance across lots of land. Mm-hmm. This particular pipeline became a concern when the pipeline was going to cross the Missouri River very close to the Standing Rock Sioux tribe. And I want to note that the big issue with this, as with other pipelines or other infrastructure, you know, the local governments get involved to decide if there's going to be any environmental impacts or other impacts. And when this pipeline was being discussed and planned, the city of Bismarck, which is the closest to the Standing Rock Sioux tribe, it was able to divert the pipeline from any impacts to the city of Bismarck. But then the pipeline got diverted and rerouted to cross over areas of the Standing Rock Sioux tribe, which have cultural concerns and certainly water concerns as the pipeline would go under the Missouri River, which is a significant water resource for the tribe. So then that became a major issue for the tribe, and they uh, rightfully said, stood out and said, no, the cultural impacts to the sacred places, our grave sites are important to us, and our water is important to us. And federal government, you have a trust and treaty obligation to protect us from these kinds of developments. Mm-hmm. And so as it was started to go through and look through the permitting process, you know, the various permitting processes that are required for this, quickly it was determined that the tribe had not had their voice recognized in this process as the other outlying governments did. Mm-hmm. So this became a protest around process of permitting, as well as a protest of protecting those sacred waters and the sacred and cultural sites to the tribe. Why was the pipeline diverted from Bismarck in the first place? Because it impacted the water. (laughs) How was their justification then to divert the pipeline? What happened early in the process, and typically this would happen with the developer, they sit down with impacted parties and They have a conversation. And so the representatives from the city of Bismarck were very early able to even, I wouldn't even say it needed necessarily was even rerouted. When the pipeline was conceptual, Mm -hmm. they were able to sit down and say, okay, let's go this path versus this path because it'll have less impact to the city of Bismarck. And the tribe did have that same right, but wasn't included at the table. And I think sometimes that happens is, you know, people forget or choose not to include tribal governments in the same processes they would other governments, like mm-hmm. the state government. And, you know, we continue from National Congress of American Indians and the tribes, we continue to try to educate policy decision makers. But it's something that, you know, wasn't really taught 
in school and certainly is hard to understand Indian law. Mm-hmm. But tribal governments are one of the three sovereigns in the Constitution, the federal government, the state government, and the tribal government. And that means that the tribal governments are governments that have the independent right to govern their own people on their own lands. They are protected by special treaty and trust obligations with the federal government, mm-hmm. which means not only do they have this right of being a government as a sovereign government is, like the state, but it also means that the federal government has an additional responsibility being the trustee to make sure that tribal lands and resources are protected and any decision-making that could impact them. You described the cultural value to the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe of the land there at the Missouri River where the pipeline was eventually to be constructed. What exactly is the cultural value of that land? Well, you know, that whole area was a significant area for the tribe. Many, many hundreds of years has been part of their hunting and areas where they would have encampments. That was also an area close to where Custard Sport was, and we all know that tragic story. But I think the best contemporary visualization is I was sitting with a grandmother in one of the forums that we were doing on educating people around the impact of the pipeline. And uh, she was talking about the gravesite, gravesite, I believe it was her son, in that area, and then how the pipeline would go right through or right close to where those graves are buried. Mm. And we know for any place in this country, we always have recognized that those final resting points Mm -hmm. are important to take care of and to protect. And particularly in tribal culture, it's really significant to us to take care of those that have passed on before, just as we take care of those that are going to be coming and the unborn that will be coming to us. So the cultural significance and the sacred significance of those lands that are adjacent right there where the pipeline would be going through was important. And I think what even created even more ire for those water protectors was after that first significant ruling by the judge who basically said, I can't stop the pipeline, but I'm asking the developers to consider the importance of this land. The pipeline folks went over and quickly scraped that land, left where they were digging Mm -hmm. the pipeline, went over and with their equipment, scraped the soils of that land to, to destroy any of those cultural significant areas. The Army Corps of Engineers over the weekend announced that it would not grant that company, Energy Transfer Partners, an easement over or under the land to continue construction of the pipeline. And, you know, they would work instead, they said, to really find another route. Is this a victory? Is this cause for celebration? It is a victory. I would have to say, I mean, this is a long-term issue, Mm -hmm. and it's not over. Mm -hmm. So the first victory, of course, was when the president sent out a letter and, you know, put a hold on this process to take a look at it and said, that the three agencies, and then later joined by all the other agencies, there's 13 agencies in the interagency permitting process, said we need to consult with Indian country about this process Mm -hmm. that excluded tribes and held consultations across the country. And that was a first step victory too, because it said, wait a minute, we're going to take a moment to think about this and where we're at 
and was there some wrong that was being done? And let's look at this. You know, what we came up with this accelerated permitting process to hurry with energy projects in America. Did we lose a partner who needed to be at the table? And we would attest that, yes, that was the case. Mm -hmm. So those consultations were going on. But then the pipeline continued to move forward with on this particular project, even though there had been some good wisdom from the judge who had ruled and, of course, others who had said, pipeline, consider alternatives to such an impact, and they choose, chose not to do so. And so this was incredibly important ruling, a decision of the Army Corps of Engineers to be able to say, we're going to deny this last easement. Mm-hmm. And look at the full project and require an EIS, an environmental impact statement for the full project, which means that all the other permits that were given beforehand would be under evaluation too. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, said to look for alternative routes. Now, this morning in the news, we've heard from the pipeline developers that they are going to move forward. They think the next administration will resolve Mm -hmm. any of their issues. They're going to move forward and they aren't looking at all for any alternative routing. Like I said, I don't think this issue is not over. Um, There will be more things as we move forward. I've just been so impressed with the number of people that are there, the number of tribes that have been represented, that have stood for water rights, for cultural protection. How many people are there right now at Standing Rock? How many tribes are represented? There's about 10,000 people there right now. There may be more. I know that the numbers started to score. The one federal government said a week ago said, we are not going to forcibly remove. And then the governor immediately issued his statement saying, but I will. Mm -hmm. the numbers started to increase. So there was easily, you know, almost overnight up to 10,000 and more folks there. And then just recently, at least 2,000 veterans joined them who said that we will be your human shield. Because of the rubber bullets, the water cannons, the dogs and other things that created this real environment for potential violence and harm. So even though that the the camp has made, and the tribal chairman, Chairman Dave Archambault, is just an amazing, inspirational leader, but has really kept the camp as a very peaceful and prayerful place. Mm-hmm. And if you went there, you can just feel the spirit of people coming together in support. And it's not surprising, you know, when you talk about the number of tribes who have joined in across the country. It was interesting to see how many tribes stepped forward so quickly. And then we heard from them. Mm-hmm. And we heard that all of those tribes have a similar story, that somewhere in their recent history, that there was some wrongful taking of land or a dam that went through that flooded their lands without their consent or other impact developments that would impact their fishing and their livelihood or the taking of easements that come through their tribal lands for a major highway, a railroad, an energy corridor. And so every tribe has some similar story. And so they could all connect with not only when, you know, the United States government came to be and treaties were 
put in place with tribes and tribes ended up ceding their land Mm -hmm. for those promises of the federal government, those treaties of trust and protection. Not only did that happen then, but continually through the history of United States, there has been continued policies that have taken the land or the resources from tribes. And, you know, Standing Rock was just a moment in time when tribes came together and said, enough, enough. Mm-hmm. We need to stand as other governments and be able to have the right, same rights to be able to make sure that our interests are protected. I was so moved, Jackie, when military veterans announced that they were going to go to Standing Rock, as you mentioned, and really to do so to protect the water protectors from the brutal violence that we'd seen that you've described with the rubber bullets and the dogs and the water hoses and more, tear gas, the violence that was being enacted on unarmed people who were there in peaceful protest. It makes me think that there's a movement energy in the country right now. And I I wonder, when you think about state-sanctioned violence against peaceful protesters as part of the movement for Black Lives, as part of Occupy Wall Street, and now uh, at Standing Rock, what are the connections there? And how can people reorient their movement energy from Standing Rock to other places? I think you're right. I think that's why we saw so many people from other communities. It wasn't just tribal communities that joined forces. Certainly the environmentalists had a huge case to be made with their concerns about fossil fuels that had some convergence with the tribe. But there were those that are the civil rights and environmental rights protectors that joined forces. There was the common day, you know, family, parents, grandfathers, a variety of people who came, and they all came for some reason and felt some connection when they were there. Remember the 99 percenters, right? Mm -hmm. Those that came together and said, enough's enough. We're bearing it on the backs of ourselves and our children, and we're creating an alliance, you know, an environment where, you know, the haves and the have-nots. Well, that transfers into policy, too. You know, how do we bring together America and unite America? And I think, you know, even post-election, people are saying how important it is for us to find those common grounds, for us as American citizens to come together, and how can we strengthen America by unity rather than by tearing it apart or more polarization or, you know, segregation of these populations and policies that affect them. Mm -hmm. I think as American citizens, that is is very much a part and certainly part of us at National Congress of American Indians and an Indian country, very much on our minds. The important thing to me, I think, is is, is important as we think about how do we educate our younger generation. Mm -hmm. Our younger generation will follow in our footsteps and they will see how we respond in these environments. And it is absolutely so important that we use these teachable moments in our classrooms, in our families, in our community settings to be able to set a tone that aspires to the America that we believe it should be and dream it to be. We are the Communities for Just Schools Fund. And so our focus is black and brown children all over the country and ensuring equitable access to schools 
and really resourcing community organizers, grassroots organizers who are pushing for equity in education. And I, I talk often about the cultural stripping that occurred in Native American boarding schools and the similarities between that experience and the experience of Black children in schools today. When you think of colonization and the boarding school experience, Jackie, how is Standing Rock connected? It's another one of those sad stories of our history that unfortunately, you know, in America, we choose not to acknowledge. And I'll just say this, for example, in American history books and in our classrooms, the tribal experience is almost romanticized. You know, Mm -hmm. you've got Pocahontas and you have like Thanksgiving Mm -hmm. and, but what we don't tell about those massacres Mm -hmm. and those actual, you know, hunting of redskins for bounties and not just in the East Coast. California is a great example of just hunting down redskins for slaughter. Mm. And we don't we don't really talk about that or acknowledge that. Now we'll talk about slavery mm-hmm. and the impacts of slavery, but we still haven't talked about the impact of the native story. And I think partly because when well, I was having this conversation with someone once and they said the United States has come out and has acknowledged the policies of segregation and certainly have, you know, turned around from, as some would say, some of those policies of segregation. But the policies of assimilation mm-hmm. that are just as destructive as segregation was to African Americans, that the policies of assimilation to tribes, many of them are still in existence. Mm-hmm. So the structural racism that says it's okay for a city to have tax-exempt bonds and build a golf course or a park or a parking lot, but not for tribal governments. They can't use tax-exempt bonds for the same thing because we're going to afraid it might help benefit their gaming operations. Or a policy that says tribal gaming operations are only for tribal infrastructure, which, you know, of course, is what the resources go for. Or a jurisdictional policy that says you know, tribes can have the authority in their tribal courts to address perpetrators of non-natives over violence of, against women and just recently allow that to happen, but not violence against children. You know, those are the kinds of things that I think this country still hasn't resolved. Um, how do we deal with what they used to call the former Indian problem? You know, my mom went to boarding school. My husband's mom went to boarding school. So we know those experiences well and the tragedy that it created mm-hmm. into keeping our cultures alive. This resurgence of culture in Indian country mm-hmm. is a healing moment. So when tribes and tribal citizens are coming together and we're relearning our language and we're practicing our culture, some folks don't understand that that culture is religion to us. Mm-hmm. And so when we say things like protecting our cultural sites or our sacred sites, like, you know, in Cannonball, in Standing Rock, those sacred sites across America, are those are the same thing as cathedrals to somebody else mm-hmm. from another religion. Those are our cathedrals. Mm-hmm. Those are our places of worship and ceremony. And it helps us to get to that next place you know, to get past those wounds of 
historical trauma that's affected our community so adversely. That's so powerful. You know, culture is religion to us. That is a very, very powerful statement. And I think about that and think about the history that you've shared. And I think about this this one small victory that people are hoping will be a victory that the Army Corps of Engineers announcement around uh, Standing Rock and the Dakota Access Pipeline. Do you think that is actually a start to addressing America's original sin? I do. Of course, I tend to always be an optimist, right? (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking for the opportunities. Mm -hmm. But I think all of our educational opportunities, and we've got a lot of educating on this one. Uh, I would say a lot of educating. We have industry partners. We have federal agencies, we have state partners, local governments, to be able to understand, which most folks don't totally have a great understanding of, the federal trust obligation. But it doesn't mean no development. It doesn't mean that we aren't going to be a responsible government like any other government to sit at the table. Mm -hmm. And I think coming up with the processes that make that work. For example, when this country was getting a boom of cell towers across the country, right? Mm -hmm. And everybody wants to go to the highest peak so that their airwaves would work the best, right? And and a lot of those were places that were important to tribes, and the industry players were concerned about that. But tribes sat down with the industry and the FCC, and we found a way to be able to say, okay, these are the areas of our concern. This is how we can consult on those issues and provide our comments and be part of the process to seek a solution. So I believe that there are solutions, and those solutions are just sitting down as government, mapping out what makes sense, and being respectful of each other. I think that part of the challenge is with tribal governments and, well, as tribes, you know, this country has had a history I'm not necessarily respecting tribal governments. Mm. I can say that so tactfully. Mm-hmm. And it continues on today in many different ways. Mm-hmm. You see it in a mascot that it's okay to disrespect tribal cultures, tribal people, to make fun of them. Not only have derogatory mascots, but caricatures and actions, such as war hoops and other kinds of things, that were created in the 1940s. And in the 1940s, if you look at American Indian history with the United States, in the 1940s, that was the time when we had the highest number of potential terminations from Congress. National Congress of American Indians was created in 1944 just because Congress was trying to pass bills to terminate tribes mm. to remove our existence from the federal landscape. Mm -hmm. And so you see that. And then, of course, with the boarding school, which was another era of assimilating tribal citizens. And American Indians were the last people that were given the right to vote. It wasn't until early in the 60s and 70s where some states actually took away some of their former policies that we had to rescind ourselves, rescind our tribal citizenship in order to be able to vote. Mm -hmm. So... Example of example about where tribes, tribal citizens have been treated with a different set of rules when it comes to civil liberties, civil rights, and equitable policies and opportunities. You know, we often hear about and talk about education as a path to freedom, a path to success. And just given the 
fraught relationship, which is certainly an understatement, between public education and Native people in this country. Do you think that education is a path to freedom and to success for Native people? And given the resurgence that you describe of really focusing on reconnection to culture, to heritage, to spiritual practices, how should schools and education be different than what they are now? Great question, because I think a lot of tribes are developing their own tribal schools so they can have their language immersion programs. But interesting enough, in my um, in the community I come from in Juneau, Alaska, the public school even has a language immersion program. And I think it reminds me so much of my clan leader, Austin Hammond, whose name was Donna Walk. And, mm-hmm. and I remember once him telling me this lesson. He said, when Jesus called the little children unto him, he didn't call them by race. Mm-hmm. And then he told me, he said, because I was running the culture camp with him during that time period. And he said, Jackie, when you run the culture camp, let all children come to the culture camp. Because he said, those that get to know us better mm-hmm. can be our advocates in places that we can't be. That's what I think about the public school education process, is that they should learn about the tribes that they live amongst and they're about. In our school system, we created a lot of education about the tribes and who they are and tried to make the tribal citizens feel comfortable being in that education system because many of our parents, like my mother and others, are uncomfortable with the public education system because of the boarding school environment. Mm -hmm. And now I see like teachers and non-Native teachers who understand this better Mm -hmm. are advocates and advocates for our children. And so it's so important that we reach beyond those false lines that we've created and share our stories Mm -hmm. and let others in while others respecting who learning to respect who we are. And I think it just really helps. One of the things that we work really hard for in the Every Student Succeeds Act is to make sure that tribes have the right, mm-hmm. as other governments have, to be part of the education policy decision-making. And so in that particular act, you actually see a new opportunity for tribes at the state level to be engaged in and consulted with around education policy that affects their tribal students. Mm-hmm. I think that was a great step forward. What is the culture camp that you talked about? 13 years before I moved to D.C. and when my children were little, and because when I was little, I went to fish camp with my grandfather. And my grandfather taught me how to subsistence and, and how to put up fish and do all the things that I need to know and taught me all the stories I needed to learn. And then when my children were born, my clan leader, what He felt a real strong need. Um, He had a vision that it was his responsibility to prepare the grandchildren and to teach the grandchildren. And so I assisted him with that. And we had a culture camp at our fish camp. And we ran it through the summer when kids were out of school. And and we let anybody come. But we taught them language, protocol, medicines, lessons of peer discipline, self-discipline, drumming, songs, all the tools that they needed to know to be to be raised in that environment, to be a strong Native leader, mm-hmm. but also to really feel like grounded in their culture and their language. And some of the best of my life were there. <laughs> At the fish camp. At the fish camp. 
I want my kids to go to the the culture camp. That just sounds fantastic and and sounds like a wonderful way to really um, honor your heritage. It was so wonderful to me as those young kids that I taught early are now the teachers in our schools teaching language immersion. Mm -hmm. They're leading in our universities and teaching the next generation of teachers. And I think my clan leader really had a vision. And in fact, one of the things that he did was with that vision, he went to the public schools and he created with another teacher a curriculum for all the grade schools for each year that they would learn a different element of our culture as part of their school curriculum. One last question about the recent elections. Um, You mentioned that the company has said explicitly that it's not looking for a rerouting of the pipeline and they're going to kind of wait for the next administration, which might uh, indeed be friendlier to them. What do you anticipate from the elections with respect to the Dakota Access Pipeline, but also just continued efforts to really protect tribal sovereignty? I would hope that the parties on all sides, a little bit of a cooling off period to be reasonable. I mean, if I was the developer and I could see all of the, across the world, the global support for the water protectors and this environment of social and morally ethic, you know, good stewardship from companies across the country, I would want to rethink my and see if there wasn't anything that I could do that could accommodate some rerouting of the pipeline. Mm-hmm. I would think that the investors in that development would also look at their investment and urge the pipeline company to be more reasonable. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a time for that to happen. I think that also the government, I think that the next administration will learn that there are rules and protections and laws in place. And as a government, you have a responsibility to all of your citizens. Mm -hmm. And that balancing act is sometimes very difficult to play in the governmental role. But you have a responsibility to hear and to be able to find that winning position. I think in Congress, we have supporters on both sides of the aisle on this. And partisan politics continue to be at play. But when it comes to Indian politics, we are very bipartisan. Mm -hmm. And we have good supporters on both sides of the aisle. And so I am hoping with all of that common sense will prevail, that we won't be driven by political statements or public statements, but we'll be driven by what is right and find a better winning situation. I certainly know that this most likely won't be everything that the tribe would have wanted or the water protectors would have wanted. But I do think that there's a place to find some common ground that gets us at least to a different place than we are right now. Jackie, thank you so much. Jacqueline Peta is the executive director of the National Congress of American Indians. Jackie, how can people find you if they are looking for you on social media or, or online? Social media, just look at anything with NCAI, National Congress of American Indians. So we have Facebook, Twitter, all the, all the social media tools. And then, of course, if you go to our website, you can just email to NCAI and that email will automatically be sent to me. I appreciate your time. I know that there's a lot happening right now. So 
Thank you for talking with us today. Sure. Thank you and have a good day. Thanks to all of you for listening in. Remember that you can follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter and sign up for the Communities for Just Schools Fund newsletter at cjsfund.org. Thanks for listening. Have a wonderful week.